So I was with these uh, two little kids once, and it was a boy and girl, brother and sister, and uh, they were playing with the toys and, you know, that kind of stuff. And, um, and, and the boy, who was bigger than the little girl, uh, took, reached out his hand and took uh, something that the little girl believed was by rights hers. You guys ever seen anything like this happen before? So the, so the, so the little boy reached out and took his sister's uh, possession. And, and in these scenarios, when when a sibling takes another sibling's uh, what they perceive to be by rights uh, belonging to them, uh, inevitably there's some sort of reaction. Now, some of these reactions uh, could be uh, something like uh, name-calling. You know, your, your, your breath smells like poop, and, and I hate you, or something like that, right? You guys have seen this, right? Uh, it could also just be uh, the feeling the overwhelm of the injustice that the that the person, the, in this case, the little girl, the sister, uh, would just begin to cry or scream, just kind of expressing that, that deep, deep emotional loss. But, but in this particular case, and I, I was struck by this, it's, 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 it's burnt into my memory, I was struck by what she said. She, um, she, she received the insult and injury. Uh, she uh, was about to express her uh, discontentment with this injustice, and she, what she did was she got up and she got real big. Now, she's half the size of the brother, but she gets, she gets real big, you know, like this. And she, she does that thing where she makes her eyes really big but pushes down her brow, right? So, like, and she, she looks at her brother and she says this. She says, I am going to bring you to justice. And I was just sitting there eating popcorn like, what? I did not expect that, right? I mean, it was so clearly articulated. I, I, I loved it because it's like, yes, this is what has happened is you have received injury. You, you have experienced an injustice. And in her uh, little heart, she sensed deeply that there was something wrong, that that which was by rights hers was taken from her. And so she wanted justice. Now, she wanted a specific form of justice. There, there are multiple aspects of justice, and in this sermon series we've been going through called The Flow of Justice, we've been looking at what the scriptures teach about the true nature of justice. And, there, and there's multiple factors, there's multiple aspects of true justice, as we see it explained in the Bible. One aspect of justice is what sometimes gets referred to as retributive justice, namely retribution, right? Now, this little girl, she wanted retributive justice, right? When she imagined, now I didn't, I didn't decompress with her, but I, I could imagine that what she imagined uh, justice looking like was, the, um, was this, uh, uh, her brother being uh, abolished and exiled to some island or some such thing, right? Just re retribution. You have done me a wrong, and I want retribution. That's when she said, I'm going to bring you to justice. It was that aspect. But there's other aspects of justice. Uh, there's uh, restorative justice, which is this thing is broken. There has been an injustice, and we need to restore that which is broken. We need to make it right. So there's re uh, restorative justice. There's also distributive justice. So if you go before the restoration and you go before the retribution, you get to the very beginning, and that is distributive justice. You see, the toys had been appropriately distributed but then the boy in this scenario reached out his hand and took, and now you have a failure of, of healthy or just distribution, distributive, retributive, restorative. 
And it is within this idea of the, the complex, robust nature of justice that we're exploring the text uh, today. And what I want to invite you into is to see how, to, to kind of meditate on and to think deeply about how true justice in all of its forms uh, intersects with or weaves together or even complements uh, generosity and how justice and generosity work together and how justice and generosity are key aspects of what it means to follow Jesus. So I, I hope to in, uh, not only invite you into that, but show you that generosity, justice, and Jesus all weave uh, together. Uh, we're going to be exploring Psalm chapter 112. So if you have your Bible, I'd encourage you to serve, uh, turn to Psalm 112. Uh, for those of you all joining us online, I'm glad to be with you digitally today. Uh, and I would just encourage you, if you have a Bible, to turn to Psalm 112. If you don't have one, just open up a new tab and go to Bible.com. And we're using the Christian Standard Version of the Bible today. Psalm 112. If you don't have it, it's also, for those of you all joining us in person, it's available uh, in the bulletin, uh, which you should have received. And uh, if, not, if you want a Bible, there are some available on the tables in the back. Uh, please take that as our gift to you. Now, uh, I wanted to mention... Applying, thinking through and applying justice as we see it explained in the Bible is extraordinarily complex. There are so many different facets and aspects of it. And so I want to invite you, uh, if you do not have a group to participate uh, in today at 11, I know some of y'all are going to be doing Rooted today, uh, some of y'all are going to be doing Surge Table or uh, Pastor Robert's class or Sonia's class or the, uh, the study in Genesis. Uh, but if you don't have a study or a group to join at 11, I want to invite you to join me here, uh, literally right here at 11 o'clock after this service. I'm going to do a question and response uh, from the sermon. So you can text in questions and then I'll do my best to respond to those during our, our sermon question and response time. So in your handout, like right in the middle, I think, is the phone number you can text those questions in. Listen, if you're going to a group or you can't join us for the live Q&R, that's totally fine. If you want to text in your question anyway and just say in the text, not going to be at the Q&R, and I'll just respond to you through text if that's okay. Uh, so I want to invite you to do that. We are thinking through uh, justice. Now let me see if I can get this up here on the screen because we are going to be uh, in Psalm 112 in the flow of justice. So Nicholas Walterstorff says this, so follow me here, that if you survey all of Scripture, you will notice that God desires that each and every human being would flourish, that each and every human being would experience what the Older Testament calls shalom, which is a peace flourishing. Uh, as it is, uh, or as it should be, excuse me, as it should be, to put it another way, that each person is experiencing the flourishing, the shalom that we saw in Eden, Genesis 1 and 2. And so generosity and justice are when we perceive that people are not receiving or experiencing shalom, that we use our time, our energy, our talents and resources to change things, to pursue justice so that each person would experience Shalom. So I want to invite you to join me. We're going to look at Psalm uh, 112. Let's take a look here. Uh, so it starts like this. Hallelujah. Happy is the person who fears the Lord. Okay, so now we've got, just even in this introduction, we have a little clue as to what type of literature Psalm 112 is. So Psalm 112 is a wisdom psalm. It kind of reads like the book of Proverbs. It's a wisdom song, and so it's going to be uh, a stereotypical. There's going to be these stereotypical statements, but the stereotypical statements are going to point us to uh, a greater value and a greater virtue. 
And so happy is the person who fears the Lord. So that's just another way of saying a person who follows after God. Or uh, if you're a Jesus follower, a person who uh, follows after Jesus. Uh, They take great delight in his commands. His descendants will be powerful in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house. And his, notice the language, his what endures forever. Oops, I'm all over the place here. Don't you love people who can't use technology, getting in public and embarrassing themselves. His what endures forever? Righteousness. Okay, so this word righteousness, uh, in the original language, it's this, excuse me, it's this word sedekah. And, and righteousness for many of us sounds like a super religious word, but it's not, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, righteousness is not a super religious word. It, it could easily just be translated as justice. So uh, justice and righteousness are almost interchangeable in the text. You'll see them. And so if you just think about justice being that which is just, righteousness is that which is what? Right, okay? So things being right. So a righteous person is a person in whose life things are right and just. And so to pursue righteousness is to pursue justice. It's to pursue making sure that things in your sphere are just or right. And so the righteousness endures forever. Again, this is uh, hyperbolic, but it is a wisdom psalm. The fear of the Lord. So notice here, a person who fears the Lord listens to his commands and is one of the things that, uh, that, that, that fearing the Lord or following the Lord is modeled out of, or, or when a person lives out the fear of the Lord, one of the ways that you could mark their life is through righteous living. Light shines in the darkness for the upright. He is gracious, compassionate, and what? There's that word again. This will just notice how many times righteousness or rightness is going to come up in this text. Now, So light shines in the darkness for the upright. So this is talking about how the Lord prepares a way of light in the midst of darkness. And this person, a righteous person, a person who follows after God, is known for their grace, compassion, and what? Righteousness. Do you see it there? Their grace, their compassion, and their righteousness. A life following after God is a life, according to Psalm 112, A life marked by grace, compassion, and righteousness. Right things, that things are right. Good will, so so here now the author is going to tease it out. And I just want to tell y'all, for those of us who have been raised in an individualistic, capitalistic uh, society where we view ourselves primarily as a consumer, uh, what we're going to see next might be a little uncomfortable. Okay. Here we go. How does grace, compassion, and righteousness, how is that lived out in the life of a person who follows God? Notice the text. Good will come to the one who does what? Lend how? Okay. And who does what? Conducts their business fairly. Now, that word fairly uh, could, in some of the other translations, uh, is the word justly. So who conducts, who conducts their business justly. So let's just pause for a moment and think about this idea of lending generously. Now, you, we have to remember that when we read the Bible, we are time-traveling tourists, right? We're, 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 reading about a, we're reading text that's in an ancient Middle Eastern context that's very different than our own. 
In fact, the idea of modern lending, the ancients would not have had that in their mind. Here's, when you see this lending generously, here's maybe a scenario uh, that could be more akin or more tied in with what was going on in the day that this was written. So this is primarily written to an agrarian society, people who were uh, sustenance farmers. And so if you had this, uh, this community, let's call it a community of about 500 people. And within this community of about 500 people, there's a bunch of different farms and there's a little marketplace and, and everyone kind of brings their goods to market, but everyone kind of relies on each other uh, in order to like, make sure there's enough food for the community, make sure there's enough security for the community. And in that community, if one farmer, due to some sort of catastrophic moment, maybe a mudslide, maybe a drought, whatever it is, one farmer's crop does not come in what happens to that farmer's family? They, they go hungry, right? And they might, be, they might start to sell off possessions in order to get food. And you can, we can see in the historical record that oftentimes when families would experience hardship in that type of environment, when they would experience hardship, there was often occasion when they would sell everything they had and it wouldn't be enough, and so they would sell their land and then they would even sell themselves into slavery. Now, this situation is dire. Now, it was no fault of their own, right? It was the drought. And yet, within the community of God-fearers, people who uh, are upright, who are gracious, compassionate, and righteous, in that scenario, this, let's say this farming family says, hey, the drought came, our, our crop didn't come in. Can we borrow some seeds? Can we borrow some resources? Can we borrow some, uh, some hours of labor? Someone who lends generously says, yes, of course. And here's, here's the deal. They give and lending generously is not lending with interest. In fact, I would just encourage you, when you go home and read your whole Bible later today, which I would encourage you to do, uh, and if you want to cheat, you just go to Bible.com and use a little search feature and look at how the scriptures talk about interest. There are dozens of cautions to people who have material wealth saying, don't lend in a way that's abusive to the poor. Don't lend in a way that takes advantage of those who are on the outskirts. And, and specifically, you'll find it's the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. That, that quartet of the vulnerable are frequently mentioned all throughout Scripture. And Scripture consistently says, do not lend in such a way. Make sure your lending practices are in such a way that it does not do an injustice to the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. We conduct our business, we lend generously, and then conducting our business with justice. So that idea of lending generously, in that scenario where the farmer experiencing the drought says, hey, can we borrow some seed? And this farmer says, I have an abundance of seed. Here, please take this seed. And then there can be expectation for that seed to be paid back in due course. But here's the underlying principle. A righteous person, when they have seed in their hand, a righteous person recognizes, at the end of the day, where did this seed come from? At the end of the day, whose is this? Who, this resource that I'm holding on to, whose resource is it? All right, so let's get, let's get spicy. Capitalism argues that this resource is mine. Socialism, by and large, especially communism, argues that this resource is the government's. But a biblical view says this resource, at the end of the day, is God's. 
And therefore, a biblical view of our resources confronts socialism as well as our beloved capitalism. Now, if you don't believe me, that's totally fine. Okay, just read your whole Bible later today and you tell me how the Bible thinks about our resources. Okay, so come on now, let's keep going. So, and who conducts their business justly or fairly. Okay, so, so when we're conducting our business justly, follow me here, conducting our business according to whose justice? So if it's how God defines justice, this is, this is what I understand uh, biblical justice to be, that everyone receives what is their God-given right or their due. That, that everyone receives what is due to them based on what God says. Now, this, of course, unpacks all sorts of questions for us living in this particularly affluent society. Well, what does the scripture say is due to a person? And I just want to encourage you, come to the question and response time, and I'll tell you exactly all the ways that I don't know the answer to that question. Let's keep going. <laughs> so conducting our business, I, I, um, we recognize that there are some farmers in our community who have experienced drought and therefore do not have seed. And there are many of us who have a, an abundance or plenty to share. And so conducting our business justly is not saying, what can I get away with according to the law? Right? This is not about appealing to man-made laws. This is appealing to godly justice that every person has, that every person receives what is their God-given due. So uh, I'll give you an example. Uh, one of the practical ways we see this played out here. Uh, there's an organization in Phoenix called Hustle Phoenix. Now, some of y'all are uh, serve uh, with Hustle Phoenix. Hustle Phoenix recognizes that there are certain pockets, there are certain, if, you can, if I can belabor the metaphor, there are certain farmers in our community who do not have the uh, resources. They've got the work ethic, they've got the integrity, but they don't have the resources uh, in order to make a successful farm. And so what Hustle Phoenix does is it finds people who have the knowledge, the community, the social network, and the material resources to be able to invest in someone who's got the motivation, who's got the vision, who has the integrity, they've got the drive, but they don't have the resources. This could be anything from pairing someone uh, with someone who knows marketing or banking or how to fill out forms for the government, whatever it might be, or it may be a microloan, an investment so that they can get their business off the ground. And so we participate as a church with Hustle Phoenix. They're actually going to be here uh, in the next couple of weeks, and they're going to present some opportunities for us as a church family to be more involved. But conducting our business justly is not just about conducting our business legally. It is also conducting our business in such a way that people in our community or in our sphere of influence are experiencing shalom. They're experiencing flourishing. Now, <clears throat> There are many questions that we're asking. <laughs> Here we go. Let's have fun. Um, there's conversations that we're having as a community about what is a living wage. And I know that primarily it's politicians who are having that conversation, but I want to just encourage you, if you're a follower of Jesus, that's a question you should be asking too. What is just? What is just? What's a just wage? Okay, that's an excellent question for us to pray through. Uh, other things. Uh, how should we order our lives and lifestyles as a community? 
Should we order our lives and lifestyles as a community primarily, primarily around extracting every ounce of capital gain that we can for our shareholders? Or do we need to factor in things like personal health or the health of families? Now, I'm, I'm asking a lot of questions that I'm not giving you answers to, and here's why. Check this out. When we come to the biblical understanding of justice, we want to understand that there's three levels uh, that we need to be thinking through. First is the principle, the second is the posture, and the third is the policy. First, the principle. So the principle is, is that we should, or we are called to, if we're a righteous person, if we're a follower of God, that we are called to pursue the shalom of every person made in the image and likeness of God. We're to pursue justice. That's our posture. So our posture is towards justice. What's, excuse me, the, the principle is towards justice. What's the posture towards? Well, the posture specifically in Scripture, though justice is for all, that there's a special and unique posture that people who follow after God are called to take, and that's this posture. It's looking out for the concerns and the needs of, specifically, the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. To put it another way, those who are easy to ignore. So the principle is justice for all, but there's a lot of people who it's easy not to listen to when they say, I'm not experiencing justice right now. Not experiencing the shalom that God has for me, and here's why, right? And so our posture is to keep our ears open for the, uh, the people who it's easy to ignore. And then finally, we get down to this conversation. It's a conversation about policy. And man, oh man, conversations about policy, how we're actually going to listen to those on the margins and pursue justice, how we're actually going to do that. Do you think that's easy or hard? Huh? Oh, is it? I didn't notice. No, just, just, just check in on something here. Why are, on which one of these levels are we primarily yelling at each other about? And in fact, one of the things that is so dangerous to do, one of the things that we kind of keep doing as a community is this. We assume because you differ with me in policy, you also differ with me on principle and posture. And I just want to caution you against that. Any conversation about policy ought to start with first our principle and then our posture. Now, here at Desert Springs, this is so great for us because we actually have an opportunity to do this. Uh, we're a bunch of misfits, we're, we, we are a bunch of people who don't generally belong together, don't generally get together. And we're a bunch of misfits from all different upbringings, all different walks of life, all different political persuasions and commitments. And within this Jesus-centered community, though we often fail, within this Jesus-centered community, we are committed to living the way of Jesus even when we differ on policy. So I'll just, I'll, just, I'll just drive it home. A, 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 a DSBC Democrat, a DSBC Republican, a DSBC Libertarian, and a DSBC Green Party can all get together around a table and agree here and here. And then have the long, difficult, uh, relying on the Holy Spirit through much prayer conversations about what we do here. You guys got me so far? What I want to caution you against is starting here and then assuming these, okay? So just because a person has a certain perspective on policy does not mean that they necessarily share the posture and principle of other people who hold to that policy commitment. By the way, it's okay to change your mind on policy commitments. In fact, I would encourage you to do so. 
When you get new information, isn't it good to change your mind based on new information? I am so concerned that we have uh, valorized uh, recalcitrance. To put it another way, we have made into a virtue not changing our minds. Like, I've held to this commitment since I was 20. You haven't learned anything since you were 20? I've never once wavered on this commitment. Really? Like, you haven't read, like, a book? Because there's, okay, so let me give you, so when we think about policy, I want to encourage you that we're going to ask ourselves this question. What's in, in pursuit of justice with a posture towards the widow, the immigrant, the orphan, and the poor, we're going to pray through and ask ourselves this question. What is the wisest, most loving decision we can make based on the information we have at the time? And then when new information comes available, we re-ask the question. So the application of justice is so complex. Isn't it complex, friends? Now, now I want you to hear me on this. Complexity does not give us permission to live apathetically. The complexity of the the problems does not give us permission to be apathetic towards those whom it impacts. Just because something is so complex does not mean that that gives us the freedom to be like, well, I'm not going to care. Because a person who pursues justice, a person who fears the Lord, pursues righteousness in all aspects of their lives. Let's keep going. They, the righteous person, will never be shaken. The righteousness, excuse me, the righteous one will be remembered forever. I love this idea that they will never be shaken. There's this old song, it goes like this, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground. Anybody know it? The sinking sand. When I stand firm in the faith foundation of Jesus, when I know that ultimately all I have is, is from him, that everything that I need will be met and provided by him, that I am not shaken. The righteous one will be remembered forever. He, I love this. He will not fear bad news. All right. You ready? Okay, here we go. So check this out. One of the things, in my experience, that keeps me from living a life of generous justice is the fear that something's going to happen tomorrow, I won't be able to control it, and then I'm going to be in need. One of the things that keeps me today from living a life of uh, generous justice is the fear that bad news is coming tomorrow. And so instead of this posture, the posture that I tend to take, fearing the future bad news, is I tend to take this posture. There's not going to be enough. There's not, what happens if? What about the potential thing happening, right? And yet a righteous person does not fear that coming bad news. Why? Because the bad news is viewed as also under the providence of God. Okay, let me drive this home for you. So Jesus, heard of him? Jesus was exceptionally uh, 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 concerned about justice and righteousness. And he called people to live lives of just generosity. But then he would say things like this. He would say it kind of all the time. Like, hey, 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 listen, guys. There's going to be like all, these, all this bad news. Don't worry. I've got it under control. He even says, um, hey, you know like how God takes care of the birds and the flowers of the field? 
Don't you think you're worth so much more than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field? If God takes care of the flowers and the birds, won't he also take care of you? Here's what's interesting. Jesus actually put this into practice. Uh, The scripture says that he did not have any place to lay his head. That he was reliant upon the provision of God day by day and moment by moment. They will not fear bad news because why? They trust in the Lord. So, um, you know that Bloomberg forecast? It's the forecast on the stock market, or maybe you've got, maybe you've got some financial investments and there's like a, a six-month or a year-long outlook. I think it's very wise for you to pay attention to that, but put it in its proper order. Who's in control, Bloomberg or Jesus? Okay, but it's Jesus. <laughs> it's just to be very clear, right? Right? So we're not going to fear the bad news. We're going to trust in the Lord. And our heart can be confident. Okay? Our heart is assured. We will not fear what keeps us from living lives of generous justice. It's fear. And in the end, we'll look in triumph over their foes. Trust in the Lord. There's, <laughs> I, I, um, there is this uh, pastor that I, I really look up to, and he told this story about generosity and how, how when the chips are down, we oftentimes will uh, retreat back into our old ways of grasping onto what we think is ours. And it's this story about this farmer. And this farmer, uh, you know, he, he wants to live generously, but, but he doesn't have much. Uh, but he comes to find out one day uh, that, uh, that one of his cows is pregnant. And of course, this is a boon for him. And so the, the cow's pregnant, and he says, oh, praise the Lord. Well, he comes to find out that, that the cow is having twins, Oh, double the income, right? I mean, this is going to be a bumper crop year for this farmer. And he's so elated. He goes back to his wife. He says, wife, guess what? Honey, guess what? Not only is the Lord providing us with one cow, but the Lord's providing us with two cows. And feeling quite magnanimous, the farmer says, you know what? I believe that God is calling us to give one of the cows to him. And so we're going to set aside, we're going to, we're going to set aside the, the cow and we're going to give it to the Lord, and then, and then we're going to have the other cow. And we'll, we'll dedicate that one cow uh, to the Lord's service. And the wife said, oh, my goodness, wonderful. The months go by. The cows are being born. And, one of the cow, and, and both the cows are, are healthy, and so they nurse the cows, and they, they grow up. And it comes time uh, to wean the cows and then to, uh, you know, you know, make hamburger, and, and all of a sudden, the, the farmer goes out, and to his despair, notices that one of the cows have died. He came back in, hat in hand, to his wife, and he reported to his wife, honey, I'm, I'm so sorry to say, the Lord's cow died. <laughs> and she stopped for a minute, she said, well, I don't think you ever said anything about which cow was the Lord's cow. You just said that, that you would give one to the Lord, and one we would keep. You didn't say which one. He's like, no, no, I always knew it was that one. Yeah, the Lord's cow died. And of course, the, the minister, uh, being an excellent storyteller, lands the plane with this statement. Isn't it always the Lord's cow that dies? In our lives, this desire to live with, with, with just generosity, we, we step out in faith and, and we say, okay, Lord, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live in this way. It's all yours. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give generously. But when push comes to shove, when the chips are down, when we fear uh, the bad news, we retreat back and say, oof, I think I just need to keep this. 
Now, this is not an appeal to an absence of wisdom or to foolishness with our resources. I believe that there's a great deal of wisdom, however, with recognizing that all I have is the Lord's. And to live uh, generously and justly is to live in this way, ultimately trusting in the Lord. Now, some people talk about, well, uh, have you guys ever heard it said like uh, Christians are supposed to give like 10% of their income? Anybody heard this before? Maybe you grew up in church, you heard that, and it's like the 10% rule. It's, it's generally what's referred to as the tithe. I actually, just in my personal opinion, I don't think that the, that the scriptures actually command the tithe, uh, that, 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 that we should give 10% uh, of what's ours. Oh, what did I just say? What's ours? I believe, my understanding of Scripture is that everything I have is ultimately the Lord's, including this breath I'm taking right now. And so it's an open-handed posture to saying, all I have needed, your hand has provided. You've always been faithful to me. And so I'm going to live out of the hope-filled expectation, Jesus, that you will continue to care for me, and I will work towards the shalom of the people in my sphere. Huh. What does a righteous person do? And their righteousness, notice it's the distribution freely, the free distribution to the poor is directly connected to the righteousness of the person freely giving. And that they have honor. And the wicked will see and be angry, they will gnash their teeth, for the desire of the wicked leads to ruin. So here's the jam. This is impossible. Like a life like this, saying all of this is ultimately God's, it's, it's just absolutely impossible. Apart from some supernatural power. Apart from some, like, spiritual power. Some means of clinging deeply to this foundation of trust and hope in God. And I want to read to you something. Uh, notice verse 9. What does it say? Come on now. Okay, and this is speaking of the righteous person. I want you to listen to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. See if you can notice something. Uh, uh, he, he, he riffs on this theme. See if you notice it. Each person should do as they have decided in their heart. He's talking about a fundraising opportunity for a famine. He said each person should do as, he has deci- as they have decided to do in their heart, not reluctantly or out of compulsion, since God loves a cheerful giver. And God, notice this, God is able to make every grace overflow to you so that in every way, always having everything you need, you may excel in every good work. As it is written, he distributed freely, he gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. Do you notice what he's doing there? He's riffing on this psalm and applying it to the church. But he goes on to say this. Now, the one who provides seed for the sower and bread for food. By the way, who is the one who provides seed for the sower? Not Bloomberg? No, Jesus, okay. Provides seed for the sower and bread for food will also provide and multiply your seed and increase the harvest of your justice. You will be enriched in every way for all generosity, which produces thanksgiving to God through us. The Apostle Paul here is saying, as we live with, in, with an attitude and a posture of generous justice, that God provides for all that we need and that, this, that we are equipped to do all the good that he has called us to. 
Ultimately, the Apostle Paul connects generous justice to Jesus, for it's only because of the death, burial, and mighty resurrection of Jesus, only because of his grace, his love for us, that we are able to even live like this, saying, all I have needed, his hand has provided. It's ultimately his, and I want to live with generous justice. That's always stemming from a heart connected to Jesus. So here's what we're going to do. I want to invite you to meditate on this. 